Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the Second Pacific Squadron which was a, a fleet of Russian ships that sailed almost 30,000 kilometres during the, uh, the Russo-Japanese War, which is uh, started the, the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century here. Some of the adventures and the misadventures uh, that uh, the 2nd Pacific Squadron got up to here uh, throughout this, this huge, big, long journey, they took so totally ridiculous. We've got friendly fire. We've got attacking fishing vessels, thinking they're Japanese, uh, Japanese squadron there. We've got alcohol-fueled rebels on the island of Madagascar. We've got ships turned into floating zoos, non-existent minefields, basically everything you'd hope for. And obviously, look, there's, there's been a, a fair bit of boat chat on Half-Assed History, and I'm, I'm very pleased to announce that the story of the 2nd Pacific Squadron uh, follows in the wake of the K-class submarines and, of course, the mighty Spanish Armada when it comes to being an absolutely absurd tale of, uh, of naval, naval misadventure. So, now, this topic, I was put on this topic by alert listener Casper from the Netherlands. So, uh, thanks very much, big fella. Good on you. Great to have you part of the uh, half Hour History family. And, uh, again, at the end of the episode, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how you can get in touch with the show. If you've got an episode idea, uh, certainly always good to hear from, uh, from loyal listeners. Anyway, let's get to it and find out what this whole story is about. We're going all the way back to 1904 here, 1904, beginning of the 20th century, when war breaks out between Russia and Japan. Now, this war is very inventively titled the Russo-Japanese War, or as they call it in Japan, the Japanese-Russian War. Uh, Again, historians really showing that they just can knock naming conventions out of the park here. Anyway, this, this conflict, it kicks off when the Japanese attack Russia in their only warm water port in the Pacific. This is the uh, the port of Port Arthur, it's called. Now, at this point in history, Russia has ports like Vladivostok, which is uh, completely un- unusable in the winter months during the fact that it, it freezes over every winter, and doesn't actually have uh, ready access to a lot of what we call warm water ports, as in ports that don't freeze uh, throughout the winter, ports that can be used all year year round, and especially in the Pacific, they don't have many. They've got some in the Baltic and they've got some in the uh, in the Black Sea, but at this stage, uh, their Pacific presence very very heavily limited by the fact that they can only keep their ports open for half the year. Now, this results in their their one warm water port, Port Arthur, which has been leased to them by the Chinese, huge, as a result, it's hugely uh, significant, huge strategic significance to the Russians. So they're absolutely spewing. They're bloody spewing when the Japanese attack it on the 8th of February in 1904 and in doing so kick off the the Russo-Japanese War. Now, they're spewing it even further because back in those days, of course, when you needed needed to declare war before, you know, you went off attacking people, you need to actually declare war so you're going to do it. And technically speaking, the Japanese, they, well, technically they did do it, but they, they sent off the de- declaration and then sort of attacked immediately. And this means that the attack took place before the Russian government even received the declaration. So it's it's a bit like telling your mum that you're staying at a friend's place tonight then running out the door before she has a chance to say, no, no, get back here, you little bugger. Get, get back. Oh, he's gone. So, you know, sort of, I guess, playing by the letter of the law rather than the spirit here. In any case... Tsar Nicholas II, he's in charge of Russia at this stage. He can't bloody believe it. He's dead set certain the Japanese aren't going to attack here because all of his advisors are saying, nah, Nick, mate, don't look, don't even worry about it. It looks all good. They're, they're going to take a swing. Don't, no worries, you big fella. So when the news comes through that they have actually attacked without a proper declaration, poor old Nicholas, he, he actually very nearly didn't believe that the news was true. So he's shocked. He's absolutely shocked that a nation could uh, could behave in this way, do something as you know as dishonourable as uh, not, not giving the proper notice to declare war. Anyway, 
The Japanese, they do very well for themselves, very well indeed with this uh, surprise attack, uh, attacking the port, laying siege to the town, nullifying the impact of Russian naval power. The uh, the Far Eastern Fleet, as it's called in the Pacific, uh, has been more or less, you know, it's either blockaded inside Port Arthur, it's sort of been, you know, ripped to shreds uh, wherever else around uh, around the Yellow Sea. And uh, as a result, the uh, the war gets off to a flying start for the Japanese, having a great time. Now, later on in 1904, in August specifically, the Russians, they rally their forces in the Pacific and they attempt to wrest control of Port Arthur back from the Japanese. Japanese, but it's no good, and they lose again. This means that the Russian power in the Pacific has been completely hobbled by the Japanese. It's just they're having a bloody terrible time over that side of the world. And uh, as a as a result of being you know in in such a bad way, Nicholas II he gets up and he says, "Look, bugger this! I'll tell you what, I'm going to make those Japanese pricks taste cold Russian steel. Even if I have to sail around the world to make it happen, I well, okay." Fair enough. Not me personally. You understand. I mean, I've got an empire to run, don't I? But you, you know, you understand what I mean. I'll send other people. Bloody, just stop looking like that. It's figure of speech, all right? I'm not going to personally go. I'm the, I'm the Tsar. You can go, all right? So, the Tsar's slightly ridiculous plan is to send a huge fleet of Russian ships from the Baltic to the Pacific. So the Baltic, if you don't know, is the sea that's sort of hidden behind Finland, uh, behind Sweden and Norway, up in the up in you know Scandinavia there, on top of you know Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, these, these areas there like that. So it's tucked away right there in little in the sort of in the, in the top bit of, uh, of of central Central Europe there, and they want to sail from there all the way around to the Pacific, which is a journey of twenty nine thousand kilometres to take the fight to the Japanese around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, on the bottom of South Africa there. Which uh, I mean, I guess you know. We can put this a little bit more diplomatically than calling it ridiculous or farcical or anything. We can say, I guess, Tsar Nicholas's plan was um, <clears throat> it was optimistic. I think is a good way to put it. Of course, there are a stack of problems from uh, from the outset, from the get go. You know, there are all these things, issues that are lining up to make this. Uh, you know, whole thing going to be very, very difficult indeed. Russia hadn't got as busy as the rest of the European powers when it came to establishing colonies around the world, which means that uh, they didn't have places to resupply and refuel their fleet. Unlike a nation, for example, France or Britain, who had colonies all over the place and could, you know, scoot all over the globe without a worry, uh, Russia is unable to do this because, again, they don't have these colonial ports that they can refuel their warships in. As well as this problem of resupplying the ships, let's not forget about the distance involved here. 30, almost 30,000 kilometres. It sounds like absolute lunacy to try to fight a war by transferring ships halfway across the world. I mean, you'd never win a game of Civ, do you? You know, with tactics like that, it's 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 laughable. But it gets worse. It gets worse than this, as the ships that they were looking to send over there were, to put it mildly, a, a bit crap. Uh, to be honest, a bit crap. We're in the pre-dreadnought era of battleship design here, meaning that naval engineers are more or less just throwing ideas at the wall to see what will stick. And this means that ships are keeling over and capsizing because they're too top heavy or they're falling apart and sinking because of you know problems problems with their overall structure and design and construction that sort of stuff. So it, it's, I mean, you could you could phrase it as a as a as a brave frontier for engineers to naval engineers to discover what is possible on the seas, but in reality of it, you just had battleships keeling over and sinking for no good reason at all, and uh, you know that's that's just the way that it was going then. Um, and in in particular, this Baltic fleet, uh, it had it particularly bad too. Not only were these ships badly designed and badly built, they were way, way too heavy once they were ready to go. They were way overloaded with thousands and thousands more tons than they could actually carry. And this meant that some of their guns, as they were zipping through the water, some of their guns were actually submerged while they sailed along, and much of the armour plating along the side of the ships offered just no protection to the ships itself, themselves because the armour was bloody underwater and you know that's not exactly what the armor is, is supposed to be doing there so the problems however they don't stop here for the russians either not you know not only we don't have to talk about the ships here let's talk about the crews because the crews involved with the fleet also posing a lot of problems here now the bloke in charge of this big whole big voyage i'm going to have a fair bit of a chat about this bloke so you can you can get used to hearing this name 
Admiral Zinovy Rojestvensky, right? And uh, we'll talk about this bloke, as I say, more throughout the episode, of course. But I want to introduce this guy. I want to introduce this guy a little, little, by share a little tidbit, a little, little biographic detail I found on his Wikipedia page. You know, on, the, on Wikipedia, they've got a little bio panel, top right of the page there. It's got his name. Yep, Zinovy Petrovich Rojestvensky. Yes, yes, yes. No worries, easy. But under that, it has his nickname. And apparently, this bloke's nickname was. Mad Dog, right? So that's pretty cool. Pretty good mad, yeah, pretty good pretty good nickname, Mad Dog. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind being called that. But what I really like about the Wikipedia article is in brackets, next to Mad Dog, it has in parentheses, it has never to his face. So this poor bloke, this poor bloke, not only did he lead this farcical trip across the, the you know the whole world a hundred years ago, his bloody Wikipedia page has got a nickname that he hated plastered all over the top of it. So this poor bloke has definitely been on the wrong side of things here. Poor old Roger Svensky there. Anyway. Roger Svensky, he is, he's got a terrible temper. Terrible temper. He rules his ship with an iron fist. So Nicholas reckons that he's the perfect candidate to sail these experimental, untested warships across the world because he's, you know, he's sure to keep discipline on them anyway. Apparently, Roger Svensky's uh, temper was so bad that he was known to have tantrums where he would chuck his binoculars into the ocean from the bridge. He just, he, he, he's bloody frothing, you know, he's frothing with rage, that sort of stuff, and he chuck his binoculars right to the sea. As a result, and this is not a joke, as a result, it was ensured that the fleet's flagship had a big stock of spare binoculars on board just because they knew that so many of them would be flung into the briny deeps by their, you know, by their rage-filled uh, admiral there. Anyway, Roger Svensky, he's got his work cut out for him, I'll tell you that. He, I've got, he's got his work cut out for him because he has... Look, we, we talk about the Admiral. Let's talk about the crew, as I say. He has got a bunch of total window lickers when it comes to the crew. It, uh, abs- these, these, these are the paste eaters of the, of the highest order here. Most of them are uneducated peasants taken from inland areas. So, you know, they don't even know how to bloody swim, let alone crew a battleship. It's so bad. But, the, the, you know, the, these, the, the people that he's had to work with, here, it's so bad that one of the gunnery officers described the men under his command like this by saying this. <clears throat> One half have to be taught everything because they know nothing. The other half because they have forgotten everything. But if they do remember anything, then it's obsolete. So it's not surprising, really, to you know, characterise this entire trip as pretty doomed from the outset. It has to be, it has to be said, because these these crews, uneducated peasants from the inland, peasants from the inland of Russia, but also terribly trained. You'll remember that Russia really struggled with access to warm water ports, meaning that for half the year, or you know, or so. These ships were completely un- unusable, stuck in the ice. So this means that the the crews are not only you know thick as two planks of wood. They don't know how to. They haven't been trained in how to run these ships properly. Make it worse. A stack of them were also revolutionaries, and obviously the Russian Revolution just a decade or so away. These blokes aren't you know too pleased about sailing off on imperial vessels, and the morale is already taking a battering before the ships have even left the you know left the dock. But that doesn't matter because, you know, they, they, they sail off all the same on the 16th of October, eight months after the war has, uh, has already begun. Now, the, the, the fleet is officially renamed as the 2nd Pacific Squadron uh, from the Baltic Fleet or whatever it was called before. And it sets off from modern-day Latvia. And the beginning of this journey is, uh, again, as you, as you can imagine here, it is a fearsome display of Russian sea power, strongly projecting its naval prowess for all the world to... No. Oh, what? No. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> Got that one wrong. It was an absolute disaster. No, absolutely. Sorry, just misread some of the stuff here. Uh, after the fleet embarked, the flagship ran aground and a cruiser dropped its anchor into the sea without a chain and a destroyer rammed into a battleship by mistake. So, you know, right from the get-go, we've established, really set the tone for this whole affair, really set the precedent for how things are going to go with this whole journey here. Uh, with an open like this, it's really just a, a comedy a comedy of errors from go to woe. They uh, get through these early obstacles and they set off through the Baltic towards the Danish Straits. Again, with maybe the tail between the legs just a little bit here. But somehow, somehow, and I don't know how, the crews of the Russian fleet 
get it into their heads that the Japanese have somehow made it into Danish waters and are waiting in ambush for the Russians on the other side of the world. I don't know how this story ever got off the ground as Japanese torpedo boats could have never, ever, ever managed to get so far away from Japan so quickly. But the Russians were spooked as all hell. And the the idea of these torpedo boats, just to explain very quickly, the torpedo boats were this sort of new technology, very hard to detect and see, very difficult to, uh, you know, to pin down as as part when you're sailing in a big squadron like the 2nd Pacific Squadron, but could do an enormous amount of damage to ships very quickly with their torpedoes. So, you know, the fear of of these boats being put into into all the, the Russian sailors, the Crews and, and whatever else is there as they're making their way through the Baltic Sea to the to the Straits of Denmark there, and having a terrible time, having a terrible time, right? Um, and despite the completely unrealistic, uh, you know, prospect of the Japanese ships being there, that doesn't matter. The, the, everyone aboard the Russian ships is, is so thoroughly spooked; they're convinced that the Japanese have submarines and mines and torpedo boats and all sorts of stuff ready to blast the Russians to bits. However, the iron-willed Roger Svensky, he has to deal with, you know, these panicking crews who are convinced they're sailing with a trap. And so he, he, he lays down the law. He issues the order, no vessel of any sort must be allowed to get in amongst the fleet. A fair enough policy, you would think, makes a lot of sense. Don't want to, you know, compromise the, the security, the integrity of the fleet there like that. But uh, it kind of comes apart a little bit until once um, two fishing vessels that had been sent by the Russian consulate with a message for Roger Svensky uh, approach the fleet in order to deliver this message and the fleet opens fire on them. So, yes, what chance did they have? Two tiny little fishing ships against this enormous big, you know, the, the might of the Russian Navy, this enormous big 2nd Pacific Squadron. Obviously, they got blasted. Oh, wait, no, sorry. No, they completely missed. Actually, they had a pretty bloody good chance against it. Every single Russian shot missed the target. The Russian gunners are so bad, they can't even shoot two of these little fishing boats out of, you know, out of there like that. Um, and the fishing ships entirely unharmed. Imagine that. Sailing off to deliver a message, having a million bloody Russian guns aiming at you, and the smoke, you know, they're all going bang, 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 off all these shells plopping into the water next to you. When the smoke clears, they don't hit a single one of you. Maybe, I don't know, you know, maybe it was deliberate, maybe it's just a massive power move from the Russians, who knows. In any case, the message is delivered and, and, and the fleet continues. But again, we're, we're very much setting the tone for the rest of the voyage here. So, the Russian ships, they continue on uh, towards the North Sea uh, with only one other brief interruption. There's a repair ship uh, sailing with the fleet called the Kamchatka. And uh, this is the first in- instance of many of the crew on this ship playing, uh, well, yeah, playing silly buggers. Because there, despite there being a complete and total lack of Japanese warships of any kind throughout this entire journey through, you know, through the Straits of Denmark and into the North Sea, on the 21st of October, Kamchatka sig- signals to the fleet that it's under attack from Japanese torpedo boats after seeing a Swedish ship sail by at a distance. The Russian uh, fleet, they scramble to respond. They ask Kamchatka to respond with how many ships are attacking, with the nature of the attack, all that sort of thing. And Kamchatka responds by saying about eight from all directions, uh, which is a very odd way to represent the number zero, you would think. Uh, but uh, it was obviously a false alarm. This Swedish vessel was no threat to the Russians there. Uh, but the Ch- Kamchatka had a few more sort of boy who cried wolf moments throughout the journey, as we'll discover. Anyway, the fleet reaches the North Sea after navigating, of course, these Japanese-infested Danish straits, dodging minefields, escaping submarines, and, and these, you know, treacherous fishing ships and Swedish boats sailing past. All sorts of brave heroism. Um, now, the morale of the crew is already pretty bloody poor. They're tired, they're stressed, they're in constant fear of Japanese attack, having a, you know, having a terrible time. And this means that one foggy night, when they're cruising past Dogger Bank, uh, Dogger Bank is a, a fishing area off the, off the coast of Britain, they spot, oh, what's this? More, 
more Japanese boats. These Japanese warships are, in fact, British fishing trawlers, but... Let's not that stop our brave Russian heroes. They leap into action. They bravely attack this deadly threat to the fleet. The fishing, sorry, sorry, the uh, the Japanese warships, extremely dangerous. They could they could attack at any time, and the Russian Russians start shelling the crap out of these poor old fishing boats. Yeah, again, fishing boats blasting them with the full force of their naval artillery. Unfortunately, they don't just blast the British trawlers with the full force of their naval artillery either. They also blast a bunch of other ships with the full force of their naval artillery. Other Russian ships. Oops. It was complete chaos. Four British trawlers were damaged. One of them sank. Uh, and two Russian cruisers, the Aurora and the Donskoy, were also bombarded uh, by seven other Russian battleships. So, pretty bad time for everyone concerned, the British and the Russians. And on top of this, the mania and the hysteria that swept up the Russian crews meant that a bunch of ships uh, signaled that they had actually been attacked. On, the, on one of the battleships, the, the Borodino, the crew scrambled to put on life jackets and grab cutlasses because they were convinced that the Japanese were bloody boarding them. Eventually, morning comes and the fog lifts, revealing the, uh, the effects of this night of unbridled chaos. And uh, all in all, I have to say, it actually wasn't as big a disaster as it could have been based on what happened. Considering the amount of firepower on the Russian ships, the damage was, was very, very minor. Well, relatively minor, at least, for considering what could have happened here. Um, this was... Once again, principally due to just how bloody terrible the Russian gunnery crews were, one ship, the Oriole, uh, apparently fired over 500 shells and didn't hit anything once. Did just 500 shells plopping into the water for Poseidon to pick up a bit later on. I mean, unbelievable. As minimal as the damage to the fishing, the fishing fleet was, the diplomatic damage caused by this event was enormous. Uh, it actually almost caused war between Russia and Britain. Uh, at this stage, Britain was allied with Japan, and they were they were raging. They were frothing at the mouth that Russia had blasted some of their fishing boats uh, to, well, one of their fishing boats, let's be fair, but that's not the point. They were trying to blast them all to bits. That's, you know, it'd be like not prosecuting a bank robber just because they walk into a bank waving a gun around and then, I don't know, just nick the pens on the on the bits of string, you know? It doesn't really matter that they're a rubbish bank robber. It matters that they try to rob a bank. So, you know, let's, let's, let's go after these Russians because they've tried to blast our... They didn't do a good job of it, but they've still tried to blast our fishing, our fishing fleet apart. In any case, because of this event, uh, which the British uh, called the Russian Outrage... Uh, they readied almost 30 battleships while following the Russian fleet with reconnaissance cruisers to keep an eye on them and see what they were going to do as they headed down the Bay of Biscay towards Spain. And uh, so terrible is the the fallout from this diplomatic crisis here that the Russian government was under an enormous amount of pressure, enormous amount of pressure to respond. Diplomatic tensions running extremely high and the Russians also not wanting the British to enter the war alongside Japan. They apologise profusely for the incident and they order Rozhestvensky to pull in when he gets into Spain for an investigation into actually what happened. Now, Roger Stvansky obviously follows orders and he put, brings the fleet into Vigo in Spain, where he pulls a pretty classic Russian move. I have to say, this is not the first time, not the last time that a Russian officer has done something like this. He blames the whole thing on a bunch of his subordinates. He says, no, it's his fault, his fault, his fault, whatever else. Uh, and, and in fairness, he blamed the ones who had actually ordered the attack. And he leaves them behind in Spain. But he's not the only person. They're not the only people who get left behind in Spain, I should say. He also takes the opportunity to get rid of a bloke he doesn't like, an ardent critic of his named Captain Clado, who was, you know, he's always slagging him off, always saying, oh, you know, you're an idiot admiral, you don't know what you're doing, you got your head up your ass, whatever else. And so he takes the opportunity to say, oh, Captain Clado also was there, you know, bloody giving, it the, giving him the ones and the twos, having a great time, firing off the missiles himself, I reckon he was. Get rid of him as well. 
Now, remember the name Captain Carter because he will be important later. He is spitting chips at being uh, turfed off these ships, but he heads back to Russia for the time being, and we'll pick up his story a little bit later on. You'll see he's very important in, uh, in, in just a little bit. Anyway, after having you know, cut all of this dead wood off of his ships, including Captain Clado there. Um, uh, Roger Svensky is again to weigh an- uh, ready to weigh anchor and uh, uh, the, the fleet sets off before separating into two different, uh, into two different fleets here. Uh, they, f- they, they split up uh, into uh, the fleet of, of smaller, older ships and, and the newer, bigger battleships there like this. The reason for this is all the newfangled big battleships, they're too big to fit through the Suez Canal. So they have to go all the way around the south of Africa to get to the Indian Ocean. All the older, smaller ships, they head off under the command of uh, another bloke, uh, one of the rear admirals, a bloke whose name was Dmitry von Volkersham, right? Now, von Volkersham was an enormous big fat bloke, and uh, old mate Roger Svensky, he didn't like him all that much. In fact, he, uh, he described him as a manure sack. But in any case, we've got the we've got the the old and the new boats, the big and the small boats, ships, sorry, uh, separated there as one of them goes through the Mediterranean, through the Suez to the Indian Ocean, and then the other one zips around down the south past the uh, past the Cape of Good Hope. So these two sections of the fleet, they arrange, they, they're going to meet up in the Indian Ocean. No worries. See you later, fellas. We'll catch up there in Madagascar. And um, in the meanwhile, Roger Stvansky continues south from Spain. But bloody hell, check this out. The idiots on the Kamchatka, they've gone and got themselves lost. This, uh, this, this support ship has just disappeared. They've lost contact with the fleet. They disappear for a number of days. No one knows what's happened to them. But after a while, the Kamchatka, it, it re-emerges and joins back up with the fleet, announcing that it had engaged three different Japanese vessels while catching up. Now, these three Japanese vessels were French, German, and Swedish. Oops. But that didn't stop the Kamchatka from firing hundreds of shells at them, I mean, definitely in their di- well, maybe not even in their direction. They, they okay. The point is, they fired hundreds of shells. Whether any of them hit or not, look, let's not get bogged down on the details of who shot what, where, and if any of them were accurate or anything like that. Doesn't matter. All that happens is we saw these Japanese ships. May not have been Japanese, but still, we saw these Japanese ships. We shelled in their general direction in their vicinity, and now we're here. So you know, have a round of pause, pat on the back, get the champers out because we're dead set heroes. Obviously, the blokes in charge of the ship, they were just, I don't know, they dead said had rocks in their head. I don't know what's going on there because shortly after this, oh, yeah, it, it didn't stop here because once they rejoined the rejoined the fleet, the Kamchatka then signaled that it had seen more torpedo boats and sent the fleet into a panic again. And, of course, there were no torpedo boats. I don't know why they're still expecting them. They're on the west coast of Africa, not a very, you know, not a very short distance away from Japan, uh, but just some idiot on the Kamchatka stuffing up and sending the wrong message again. Yeah, classic Kamchatka. Anyway, the fleet is scheduled to meet with a bunch of hired transport vessels to refuel. You'll remember, they can't do this in any of the colonial ports en route. Um, due to, I don't really understand exactly why, but due to apparently all these treaties and agreements, and again, I, I, I think it, it, it's not going to come as a shock to any of you to know that I don't have the fullest understanding of what it means, but it seemed to boil down to you can't fuel ships at war in neutral ports. That seemed to be the the, the way that it, things went back then. You couldn't go and take on coal in a neutral port if you're at war with someone else. So I don't, that just, just seemed to be the rules there. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Um, so what they've done, what Russia has done, is that they have uh, met with these uh, German supply ships that they've hired, right, They're from the Hamburg-America line, to bring them just tens of thousands of tonnes of coal. So much coal, in fact, so much coal that there isn't room to store it all. No worries, say the Russians, just dump it down there, just plonk it on the deck, hey, that's fine, we'll deal with it, no worries, we'll deal with it later. But what actually happens is this, these enormous piles of unsecured coal meant that huge amounts of coal dust start floating around throughout the ships, especially in the interior, poisoning the lungs of many sailors and actually killing a whole stack of the poor bastards as well. So, yeah, 
things going from bad to worse there for the poor old uh, Russians on board any of these ships. This whole journey, just a total joke. It's a total joke at this stage, and I'll tell you this, it only gets worse from here. While rounding the Cape of Good Hope, Roger Stvensky, he gets a message from Russia saying that he can expect reinforcements, courtesy of none other than Captain Clado. Clado had headed back to Russia and was put in charge of reinforcing the 2nd Pacific Squadron, and he deliberately does the actual worst job he possibly can, on purpose. He gathers together a fleet of the dodgiest, leakiest, bathtubbiest ships that he can find, and he sends them off to Roger, Roger Svensky with a big, a big bow wrapped around him like this for a gift. To his credit, Roger Stvansky actually suspected that Clado would be playing funny buggers, and so he did all he could to avoid meeting with the reinforcements, knowing that they'd cause crew morale to plummet even further. So despite getting this uh, this notice, he's got reinforcements going, actually, you know what, don't want them, don't need them, let's stay as far away from them as possible. And we you know, talk about morale. Morale is absolutely horrific. It's so, so bad. Most of the crews are miserable. They're in constant fear of attack. They're under this cloud of depression as they all reckon they're sailing to their doom. And Roger Svensky, he thinks, okay, I've got to do something about this. He gets on the front foot, therefore, and he decides they all need cheering up. So what does he do? He allows sailors to bring back exotic animals with them when they go ashore. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Think, think about that. You go on the course, you know, shore of Africa, get yourself a little monkey, you know, get on your, uh, sit, train to sit on your shoulder and that sort of stuff while you're swabbing the poop deck or whatever you're doing, having a great time. I mean, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, right? No. Total schmozzle. Total schmozzle. As the ships turn into these great big bloody Noah's Arks filled to the brim with all sorts of animals, people are bringing crocodiles on board. I mean, they've got no idea what's going on here. The story goes, the best one, is that's one absolute darrow brought a venomous snake with him, which then escaped, wrapped itself around one of the guns, and bit the bloke who tried to recapture one of the officers, right? Unbelievable. And these weren't the only animals that this fleet had to deal with here, because after they sail on, you know, their their ship's filled with all these exotic animals, whatever else. After this, the refrigeration system on one of the supply ships breaks down. One of the big supply ships can't keep anything uh, chilled or cold anymore. I mean, it's got all these meat on it for food. There's all these these supplies. And it it starts to rot. All this meat starts to rot. And so they have to dump it overboard. And when they dump huge, like tons of, of rotting meat overboard, they now have a huge school of hungry sharks following the fleet as well. So we've now got... Noah's Ark-like situation on all of the boats. We've got hungry sharks swimming after them there like that. Whether the snake was chucked overboard to become dinner for one of the sharks, I was never able to find out. But that is the state of affairs as they head around the south of of, of the Cape of Good Hope and into the Indian Ocean. So, Roger Svensky and his fleet, along with the other half, they finally make, to, make it to Madagascar, where, uh, which at the time is a colonial possession of France. Now, France wasn't too keen on having the Russians park their ships there as they were neutral in the war between Russia and Japan, but they agreed because of a, a broad alliance between uh, between France and Russia. Uh, so, and, and obviously, the Russian fleet is needing a little bit of time to sort of recuperate just, just a little bit. So because of this, the Russians, uh, they hang out in Madagascar for a number of weeks, actually, quite quite a, quite a fair bit of time. You'd think that a few weeks of R&R in Madagascar would do everyone some good here, you know, a bit, a bit of tropical sun and uh, hanging out, seeing all the, you know, the sites and whatever else there in, on that little island. But uh, no, no, of course not. No, 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 of course not. Just made things worse. Just made things worse. First of all, Roger Stvansky, he gets as sick as a dog and uh, one of his senior officers uh, has a brain hemorrhage. Uh, and uh, comes paralysed down one of his sides, almost dies. And as a result, there's not really anyone to enforce order and discipline amongst the crews, and they go ahead and party like it is 1899. They are heading on shore, getting drunk, they're gambling, they're visiting women of... uh negotiable affection they're having it just having a bloody great time they are partying like there's no tomorrow 
But unfortunately, a lot of them partied a little too hard and uh, got pretty bloody crook coming down with all sorts of tropical diseases like typhoid, malaria, or just, just good old-fashioned dysentery, you know, really, really sticking, sticking to the traditions of, the, uh, of, of, of you know, the, the naval, naval world there. Many sailors actually die during the stopover in Madagascar, uh, but even with any, everything that was going on there, you'd think there's enough, enough nuisance going on, but oh, no, no. The Kamchatka finds another way to make itself an even bigger nuisance than everyone else, not, not to be outdone. When one of the sailors on the Kamchatka died of, a, of some, some disease or, of a, or other, uh, they had a funeral service, obviously. Of course, they have a funeral service, lay this, uh, this poor soldier to rest. And uh, at this funeral service, they fire one of the ship's guns uh, as a salute. And I think you can probably already tell what happens here. The problem was the gun was loaded with a live shell. And this shell was fired right into another Russian ship. It fa- in fact, it was the Aurora, one of the ships that had been hit also while fighting the Japanese fishing trawlers at Dogger Bank. I suppose they were uh, very used to it by now. Anyway, Roger Stvensky, he hears of all the stuff that's going on, the chaos, you know, the the, the drunkenness, the disease, the the Kamchatka firing on uh, other ships. And he, I guess he probably got up and was, geez, if that's all they've done, I'll, I'll consider myself lucky. Once he's back up and about, he quickly tries to restore some sense of order and discipline. And uh, he does this by uh, ordering some target practice exercise, some some maneuvers, some all that sort of stuff, and, uh, and sets them up. A, fi- a live firing exercise, brilliant, no worries. We've just had, check this out, we've just had the supply ship, Ertish, arrive in, and it's full of ammunition. Obviously, we've used all of our shells, spent heaps of them fighting those blasted Japanese dogger bank and the like. So it'll be good to have some reinforcements. Let's just uh, crack open this crate of ammunition here. But what's this? Of course, the Urtish isn't loaded with ammunition. It is sent to reinforce and resupply the uh, the second Pacific Squadron, filled to the brim with winter coats and boots. Perfect for the Malagasy climate there. Yes, another masterstroke from uh, from the Russian headquarters. Anyway. Despite the lack of ammunition there, the firing exercise, it goes ahead and uh, one of the ships tows a target behind it and all the other ships line up to shoot it. Now, again, I was going to try to bury the lead here. You probably know exactly what's going to happen here, don't you? Not a single ship managed to hit the target, obviously. But one ship does manage to hit something. It's Roger Svensky's own flagship leading by example, charging from the front, manages to nail the ship towing the target itself. Brilliant. Yes. Fantastic. Really setting the tone. Another firing exercise saw the ships line up and fire torpedoes at another target, this time stationary and well clear of any other people or ships. Good thinking. Well done. But still not enough. Of the seven torpedoes that were fired, three missed completely, two crawled along at a snail's pace, one of them jammed, and the final one started swerving around in great big circles, meaning that all the ships that had lined up in formation had to flee, scatter at top speed in case they got hit, and, of course, one's ship signalled that it was sinking. And there are no prizes for guessing which one it was. It was the Kamchatka doing what it does very best once again. It turned out to be just a small issue in the engine room, but never let it be said that the crew of the Kamchatka didn't leap into action at the first t- sign of trouble. Honestly, the captain of the Kamchatka, he must have been one of those blo- the kind of bloke who would call an ambulance after stubbing his toe. I don't know what was going on with him. Anyway. After all this nonsense, the fleet is finally ready to leave Madagascar and Roger Svensky is keen to do so as quick as possible when he gets wind of some news. Moscow has got in touch and they have told him that the 3rd Pacific Squadron, this group of rubbish ships that Captain Clado had organised, was bearing down on them, ready to reinforce them, uh, threatening to reinforce them even. 
Uh, and it, it's been commanded by a bloke named Rear Admiral Nikolai Nabogatov. Uh, a stack of other Russian admirals had actually refused the assignment, but uh, Nabogatov had a fair bit of ticker, and so he took it on. He's a veteran, as he's, 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 he's an older bloke at this stage. And uh, he takes it on. He thinks he's equal to the task of, you know, getting these leaky bath bathtubs across to uh, across to Japan. So he's come around through the Suez Canal and he's going to re he's going to rejoin everyone. But Roger Svensky's got he's spewing about it. He doesn't want anything to do with these ships. He, he doesn't want to have to put up with these, uh, as he put it, archaeological collection of naval architecture. And uh, so uh, he fires up the engines of his fleet and he gets underway across the Indian, Indian Ocean as quick as he can. Now. We're used to a bit of a twist ending here and there on Half-Assed History, but make sure you're seated very securely in case you fall out of your chair in shock, because this one, oh, it's going to knock your socks off. The entire voyage across the Indian Ocean is completely uneventful. No, I know. Nothing takes place. Unbelievable. After everything that's happened previously, you'd think at a minimum there would be an alien abduction or a kraken attack or this discovery of Atlantis as a minimum. But nope, it is quite literally smooth sailing. The only interesting thing that really happens is the 3rd Pacific Squadron does end up catching up with and joining the 2nd uh, second Squadron there, much to the annoyance of Roger Stvensky. Anyway, this big Russian fleet now, combined Russian fleet, it cruises across the Indian Ocean, ready to give the Japanese what for once they finally arrive. Originally, the Russian orders were to end the Japanese blockade of Port Arthur, but by this stage in mid-1905, Port Arthur had already fallen, actually fallen earlier in the year, in early 1905. Port Arthur is, 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 is beyond, uh, beyond saving at this stage. And so instead, Roger Svensky is ordered to sail to Vladivostok, join with whatever Russian forces remain there, and bring the fight to the Japanese. However... To reach Vladivostok, the fleet has three different ways it can go. It can either go through the uh, the straits just just to the south of Korea. There, it can go all the way to, to sort of because we're, we're trying to get into the Sea of Japan here. That's where Vladivostok is. So it can go right past right, right past the bottom into South Korea. It can circle all the way around the uh, uh, the eastern side of Japan and come in from the north, which is going to add a, a whole stack of time on. It's going to take a long time to do that. Not not to mention you know the threat of Japanese uh, patrols and all that sort of stuff in those waters. Or it can take the most direct. Route right through right through the middle between Korea and Japan through the Tsushima Strait. And it is there that the Japanese fleet is waiting ready for battle. So they've, they've, the, the, the bloke who's in charge of the, of the Japanese fleet, his name is Admiral Togo, he's drawn up plans that would more or less force the Russians to fight, assuming that they were going to go through the Tsushima Strait. Now, Old mate Roger Stvansky, he, he, he looks at his options, he figures out what he wants to try to do, and he realises that there's nothing for it. He doesn't know where the Japanese are exactly, he doesn't know what Togo's got up his sleeve, but he realises that he needs to get to Vladivostok quick, bloody smart, and so he decides ultimately that the Tsushima Strait is going to be the best way to do it. Obviously, he doesn't want to have to circle all the way around Japan to the north, doesn't want to take the risk of sailing too close to Korea, and so he's going to go straight there through the middle. Now... As a result, when Roger Svensky's tired, damaged and miserable fleet arrives on the 9th of the 27th of May, Admiral Togo and his fleet are waiting and ready. Now, unfortunately for Roger Svensky, obviously he wants to try to sneak through the uh, the night. It's, it's a foggy night and he's thinking, brilliant, I can get through, un unimpeded, I can get through without being seen. But unfortunately, the laws of war prevent him from extinguishing the lights on his hospital ships that they apparently, again, I'm not the most well-versed in early 20th century rules of engagement when it comes to naval warfare, but he couldn't turn off the lights. He couldn't go full stealth mode here. 
and uh, a few Japanese patrol boats. They see the lights from these Russian uh, Russian hospital ships. They report back to Admiral Togo, and it is all hands on deck here for the Japanese. Now, going into this battle, before the before battles even been joined here, the the the, the wind is very much in the sails of the what? Well, okay, the figurative wind is very much in the figurative sails of the of the Japanese. Here. Obviously, these boats don't need these ships don't need actual wind or actual sails anymore. They're all bloody coal powered, whatever else. But you understand the metaphor holds up here. Togo is on the front foot. He's in a good spot. The initiative is definitely with him for, for a number of reasons. You might have already guessed the Russian fleet not in a good way. Not not in a good way in terms of in terms of in terms of its hardware. They're sailing these busted up old ships that haven't been maintained or repaired properly. They're in a uh, they've been the victim of what what is known in the in in the in the in the boat world as biofouling. Which uh, which sounds pretty gross, but it's just a fancy way of saying they're all you know encrusted with barnacles and and whatever else. All this uh, you know all the little bits and pieces that stick to the sides of ships and whatever else they're like that. So they're 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 really not in a good way. But in addition, Admiral Togo was one of four people ever in the history of humankind who had experience first hand experience of fighting at sea with battleships. Right, and he's one of only two people who were alive who had this experience. Um, he, uh, so, so he'd obviously, uh, Togo had led the attack, the first attack on Port Arthur and the other three Russian admirals who had had experience in, in trying to defend here, who had any experience in, uh, during the battle of the Yellow Sea there in, in using battleships in, uh, in, in a, in a fight there, two of them were dead. And one of them had been stripped of his command and sent back to Russia. So Togo is in a very good spot. He has a very unique advantage over Roger Stvensky because he has this, this incredibly rare experience of fighting with battleships. Anyway, the Russian fleet bears down through the fog and battle is finally joined on the morning of the 28th and the Battle of Tsushima began. The battle is quite quite significant in, in many ways from a historical perspective. It was actually the first ever naval battle where wireless communication technology was put to full use. Rather than signalling and flags and all that sort of stuff, people were using wireless radio waves to communicate. And, and obviously, this is revolutionary technology at the time. It's it's hardly 10 years old, and it's it has a, it has a huge impact on, on the battle as it continues. And it also ends up being, the Battle of Tsushima, it ends up being the only decisive battle ever fought with steel battleships. And it was the very last naval battle that saw a fleet with ships of the line surrender on open water. We think about battleships as being sort of, you know, a a very important part of, of, of navies around the world. Obviously, they were the, the headline act for, for naval warfare for, for a number of years. And But it, it's funny when you actually look at how much of a real impact they had on history in terms of battles and fighting, that sort of stuff, very, very minimal indeed. Very minimal indeed. This battle, as I say, the only def- decisive battle to be fought with steel battleships here um, because, you know, Again, it's a surprising to think about. Battleships are the backbone of most navies, right? Of course, there, there must have been more. There must have been more battles fought throughout history. Even today, battleships are surely fighting each other in, in, in wars and whatever else. Nope, not at all. I was amazed to learn that battleships these days are actually, they're obsolete. No one uses battleships anymore. There are no, there's not a single battleship in active service anywhere on Earth. Today, they only exist as museum ships. They don't actually fight wars anymore. Today... Navies use cruisers and destroyers, uh, which don't tend to be mounted with those enormous, big, massive guns you associate with a battleship. Instead, they use missiles, so they don't have you know that bristling with with all those uh, all those enormous big cannons or whatever else. Nations poured money into battleship programs throughout history, throughout the you know the early twentieth century. Because in the pre-nuclear era, they were one of the most powerful and dominant pieces of military technology you could ever hope to wield, much like nukes are today, really. But even for the, all the millions and millions and billions and squillions of dollars that were incinerated in constructing huge fleets of battleships, there were only ever three engagements between battleships 
ever in history. First one, of course, the Battle of the Yellow Sea, which which kicked off the uh, the Russo-Japanese War. The second one was the Battle of Tsushima, which we're obviously in the process of resolving here. And the third one, which you may have heard of, was the Battle of Jutland in 1916, which was part of the First World War. Inconclusive result of that one. Both, both sides, the British and the German, claimed victory. But again, it wasn't a decisive battle. Because... This was all before the rise of air power. Before air power became the dominant way to wage war, you know, in the 30s and the 40s, a battleship was just about the strongest tool in any military's arsenal, much like a nuclear weapon is today. But after the Second World War and into the Cold War, their impact and their relevance waned dramatically. This was due to a number of factors. Obviously, aeroplanes probably the number one reason. Their aeroplanes dominated mid-20th century warfare into, into the 21st century. And it was also the rise of nuclear power, which rendered a lot of the capabilities of a battleship completely obsolete just because of their raw destructive power now. Another factor, of course, probably probably the most significant factor, uh, the most visible factor when it comes to uh, what a navy has, what it looks like today, what re- actually directly replaced the battleship, even though it was kind of superseded by, uh, you know, aeroplanes, nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, whatever else like that. The, the direct sort of spiritual successor to the battleship these days, the most visible thing is, of course, the aircraft carrier. The modern aircraft carrier is is today probably the most impactful tool for nations hoping to project real power around the world. Henry Kissinger famously described an aircraft carrier as 100,000 tonnes of diplomacy, which I think sums it up very nicely there. There are actually only 41 aircraft carriers on Earth, 11 of which belong to the United States, and a surprising second uh, surprising second place, the, the nation that has the the second most, uh, the second greatest number of battleships is Italy. They've got two other nations like uh, the United Kingdom, uh, India, China, Thailand, Brazil. They've all got one, a couple of others as well. I can't remember them all the top of my head. Um, we're getting a bit more into sort of modern international politics here, so I'm not, I'm not going to labour the point, but. The importance of aircraft carriers in global diplomacy today, it really cannot be overstated. By giving global mobility to nuclear-capable aircraft, uh, an aircraft carrier is just about as good as it gets when it comes to the projection and the deployment of real power today. As Bill Clinton once said, one, this is what this is was sort of his take on, on the situation with aircraft carriers. He once said, when word of a crisis breaks out in Washington, it's no accident that the first question that comes to everyone's lips is, where's the nearest carrier? Anyway. Right now, we're back in 1905 when battleships are the apex of military technology, where sticking a knife on the end of your gun was still seen as a pretty clever idea. And uh, you won't be surprised to learn that the Battle of Tsushima is uh, a bit of a one-sided affair. Honestly, at the end of the day, the Japanese, they make absolute mincemeat of the Russians there. Um, This is obviously due to a huge number of factors there, most of which you can probably guess. The dilapidated Russian fleet, demoralised, poorly trained crew, damaged unkempt ships, their lack of strategic supremacy, they're ripped apart, ripped apart by the Japanese. The Japanese had bigger and better ships, bigger and better guns, and they bombarded the hell out of the Russian ships. They sunk all eight Russian battleships, four cruisers, six destroyers, and killed over 4,000 sailors and took nearly another 6,000 prisoner. The Japanese, by contrast, lost three torpedo boats and about 100 sailors. So, yeah. Pretty, pretty one-sided affair there. Uh, in the middle of the battle, our mate Roger Stvensky is knocked out by a blast of shrapnel, and so Rear Admiral Nabogatov took over. But it wasn't long before poor old Nabogatov, the, the bloke who you remember was in charge of the third squadron there, is forced to surrender. He did his best to put up a fight. You've got to give it to him. But the Japanese guns outranged his own guns by about a kilometre. So he realised the entire fleet would be just utterly destroyed if he didn't surrender to the Japanese. As a result... On the morning of the 28th of May, Nabogatov, he ran up the XGE signal. This was uh, back then the international signal of surrender. And, uh, of course, that should have been it there for the battle. But, of course, we can't end this story without just a little bit more lunacy, can we? The Japanese didn't have surrender 
in their code books. And so Togo kept on firing while the Japanese tried to figure out what this strange signal that the Russians were sending, what it meant, because they didn't understand. Surrendered? Not in our books. I don't know what's going on there. So while still being shelled like this, Nabogatov, realising that his surrender hasn't been recognised, he orders that his sailors go and retrieve some white tablecloths and run them up as flags of surrender instead. Even this isn't enough, however, as Togo thinks it's a ruse, doesn't trust them, doesn't, doesn't think they're actually surrendering, and continues to fire on the, uh, on the Russian ships there. Finally, having no other option here, Nabogatov suffers the humiliation of having to run up the Japanese flag itself from his ship as a symbol of total surrender, and finally, the Japanese guns fall silent. Nabogatov, he knows that he's going to be shot for surrendering like this, that he knows he's going to be court-martialed, he's going to have a bullet put in his head, but he made his feelings clear about this whole thing when addressing his crew. This is what he said. He said, You are young, and it is you who will one day retrieve the honour and glory of the Russian Navy. The lives of the 2,400 men in these ships are more important than mine. Now, happily, by the way, I can tell you that Nabogatov wasn't executed. He, uh, he returned to Russia, and of course, as he expected, he was court-martialed, and he was sentenced to death. But Tsar Nicholas ended up commuting his sentence to 10 years of imprisonment, and uh, he, he served about not, not even three years of those 10 before actually being, uh, being pardoned and released. And he, he lived to, the I think, 1922 is when he died. He, you know, he, he did, as far as anyone could in Russia in the, in the 10s and the 20s of the 20th century, he lived as happily ever after as you know, history would put him to. Rozhostvensky, on the other hand, for his part, he took full responsibility for what had happened. Uh, even when the court-martial sought to blame Nabogatov for the surrender because he, he was the one who actually done it, Rozhostvensky stood up and said, nope, it was my fleet, it was my ships, it was my orders, and I take full responsibility for the defeat that we uh, that we suffered. He might have been a cranky, binocular-destroying old curmudgeon, but I'll tell you this, he did have a sense of honour and duty. In any case, the long and arduous journey of the uh, of the 2nd Pacific Squadron, it ended in total disaster. A fitting end for a disastrous trip, it has to be said, uh, with the defeat at this, uh, the Battle of Tsushima there, losing the war, uh, for the Russians, not just the battle, but the entire war. The Russia-Japanese war was decided there at the Battle of Tsushima and, uh, and the Japanese uh, came away with the W. Um, re- the reason for this, revolutionaries are threatening the government in Moscow. The Tsar, Tsar Nicholas could you know, read the writing on the wall and as a result, he sues for peace uh, with the Japanese. He recognises that the war is lost. Peace negotiations were actually successful me- successfully mediated by, uh, by Theodore Roosevelt, the American president at the time, taking place in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and old mate Teddy won a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in doing this. But the long-term historical impact of the Russo-Japanese War and the Treaty of Portsmouth are pretty bloody significant, I'll tell you this. The Russian defeat, it fueled the fires of discontent in Russia, which of course led to the revolution in, uh, in 1917. But for Japan, even though it was this massive big victory, it was the first time in the modern era that an Asian power had defeated a European power on the battlefield, even despite this, Many people in Japan were extremely pissed off about the peace treaty as it seemed to favour the Ru- seemed to favour Russia, the losers. Russia wasn't made to pay reparations, wasn't made to cede significant territory, and and this led to a very very intense anti-US sentiment in Japan. Given that Roosevelt had been, you know, he, he was the one in the, in the in the thick of things in negotiation, he was portrayed as as favouring the uh, favouring the Russians in these in this negotiation process. So this went on to influence Japanese diplomacy and regional expansion in the coming decades. I have to say, I mean, this, this again, this anti-US, this anti-Western sentiment that the Russo-Japanese war kind of cooked up here ended up having quite a significant impact on the way that the Second World War played out as well. So there was, you know, it, it echoed throughout history, this whole conflict here. But again, that is, a, that is another story for another time. 
The second Pacific Squadron, it dragged itself halfway across the world, experienced some of the most ridiculous bloody challenges that you can imagine on the way, only to be immediately and almost effortlessly destroyed by the Japanese as soon as they arrived, not even before they even arrived at their intended destination. After everything that the fleet went through under the command of Roger Stvensky, it's interesting to think about what Admiral Togo had to say to his defeated rival after the battle. Because obviously Roger Svensky oversaw the fleet through, through come hell and high water, he, he stood at his post and he did his very best to, uh, to you know, do, to, to complete and fulfil the orders that he was given. And so it puts things in perspective when you think about what Togo ended up saying to Roger Svensky. Roger Svensky was taken prisoner by the Japanese after his injury, and while he was in a, a hospital bed, Admiral Togo actually came and visited him. And it was during this visit that Togo said at Roger Svensky's bedside, he said this, he said, Defeat is a common fate of a soldier. There is nothing to be ashamed of in it. The great point is whether we have performed our duty. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Second Pacific Squadron. And once again, thanks so much to Casper from the Netherlands for, for for sending in this idea. It was it was it was really really excellent to read through. And I, I ended up doing a bunch of other reading about aircraft carriers and stuff as well, which was good fun. So thanks so much, Casper, for the suggestion. If you would like to follow in Casper's exalted footsteps there and send me through an idea for an episode, I've already got quite a number that I'm trying to work through there. Not all of them are necessarily appropriate, but I'm really doing doing my best to include as many as I can. Uh, You can add yours to the list. Uh, Send me an email. You can jump on halfhousehistory.net and there's a contact form there. Send me through an email via that one and I'll, I'll add it to the list and have a look and see if I can get across it. And uh, it's there you'll find all the old episodes and details how, to, yeah, how you can support the show on Patreon if you want to do that. There's no obligation, of course. The show's free. It's always going to be free. But uh, if you want to chuck me a couple of dollars for, uh, for you know, for, for this, this show, I, I certainly appreciate it. And, and thank you so much. Very special thank you to all of the Patreon, uh, Patreon members who are, who are throwing me money hand over fist. I, I, mean, I, can't, I can't. It's like Scrooge McDuck up in here, really. I'm just having the greatest time. That is just about that. Of course, I'm still sending out stickers. If you want one, send me your address, your postal address, and I'll send it through to you. Uh, I'll send it through to you, no worries at all. That's just free. That's a, a free service provided by uh, half House History, so thank you very much for that. Um, but uh, I think that's going to do it for this week. That is uh, that is going to be enough for this week. We'll see you back here, of course, for, for more half House History in one week's time. But until then, leaving you with a question posed by a historian on Reddit. Uh, we've talked about Russia. We've talked about some of the lunacy that Russia has perpetrated, uh, specifically at the beginning of the 20th century. But more broadly speaking, Russians aren't known for being, you know, the most rational and reasonable people with, with a lot of the stuff that's associated with them. And this is a very, very uh, relevant question as a result from uh, Reddit historian Machiza, who asks, if Russian roulette had never been invented, would Russian's population be one-sixth larger?